0: section six of the life of samuel johnson volume four this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the life of samuel johnson volume four by james boswell section six i remember once to have heard johnson say sir a thousand years may elapse before there shall appear another man with the power of versification equal to that of pope that power must undoubtedly be allowed its due share in enhancing the value of his captivating composition johnson who had done liberal justice to warburton in his edition of shakespeare footnote of the last editor warburton it is more difficult to speak. Respect is due to high place, tenderness to living reputation, and veneration to genius and learning. But he cannot be justly offended that that liberty of which he has himself so frequently given an example, nor very solicitous what is thought of notes which he ought never to have considered as part of his serious employments, which was published during the life of that powerful writer, with still greater liberality, took an opportunity in the life of Pope of paying the tribute due to him when he was no longer in high place, but numbered with the dead. Footnote. The liberality is certainly measured. With much praise there is much censure. Of Johnson's conduct towards Warburton, a very honourable notice is taken by the editor of Tracts by Warburton and a Warburtonian, not admitted into the collection of their respective works. After an able and fond, though not undistinguishing, consideration of Warburton's character, he says, In two immortal works Johnson has stood forth in the foremost rank of his admirers. By the testimony of such a man impertinence must be abashed, and malignity itself must be softened. Of literary merit, Johnson, as we all know, was a sagacious but a most severe judge. Such was his discernment that he pierced into the most secret springs of human actions and such was his integrity that he always weighed the moral characters of his fellow creatures in the balance of the sanctuary he was too courageous to propitiate a rival and too proud to truckle to a superior warburton he knew as i know him and as every man of sense and virtue would wish to be known i mean both from his own writings and from the writings of those who dissented from his principles or who envied his reputation but as to favours he had never received or asked any from the bishop of gloucester and if my memory fails me not he had seen him only once when they met almost without design conversed without much effort, and parted without any lasting impressions of hatred or affection. Yet, with all the ardour of sympathetic genius, Johnson has done that spontaneously and ably, which by some writers had been before attempted injudiciously, and which by others, from whom more successful attempts might have been expected, has not hitherto been done at all he spoke well of warburton without insulting those whom warburton despised he suppressed not the imperfections of this extraordinary man while he endeavoured to do justice to his numerous and transcendental excellencies he defended him when living amidst the clamours of his enemies and praised him when dead amidst the silence of his friends having availed myself of this editor's eulogy on my departed friend for which i warmly thank him let me not suffer the lustre of his reputation honestly acquired by profound learning and vigorous eloquence to be tarnished by a charge of illiberality He has been accused of invidiously dragging again into light certain writings of a person respectable by his talents, his learning, his station, and his age, which were published a great many years ago, and have since, it is said, been silently given up by their author. But when it is considered that these writings were not the sins of youth, but deliberate works of one well advanced in life, overflowing at once with flattery to a great man of great interest in the church and with unjust and acrimonious abuse of two men of eminent merit and that though it would have been unreasonable to expect an humiliating recantation no apology whatever has been made in the cool of the evening for the oppressive fervour of the heat of the day No slight relenting indication has appeared in any note or any corner of later publications. Is it not fair to understand him as superciliously persevering? When he allows the shafts to remain in the wounds and will not stretch forth a lenient hand, is it wrong, is it not generous to become an indignant avenger? Boswell Boswell wrote on February the 16th 1789 there is just come out a publication which makes a considerable noise the celebrated Dr. Parr of Norwich has wickedly shall we say but surely wantonly published Warburton's juvenile translations and discourse on prodigies and Bishop Hurd's Attacks on Jordan and Dr Thomas Leyland, with his Essay on the Delicacy of Friendship. The editor, therefore, is Parr, and the Warburtonian is Heard. Boswell had written to Parr on January tenth, seventeen 1791, I request to hear by return of post, if I may say or guess, that Dr Parr, is the editor of these tracts. End of footnote. It seems strange that two such men as Johnson and Warburton, who lived in the same age and country, should not only not have been in any degree of intimacy, but been almost personally unacquainted. But such instances, though we must wonder at them, are not rare. If I am rightly informed, after a careful inquiry, they never met but once, which was at the house of Mrs French in London, well known for her elegant assemblies and bringing eminent characters together. The interview proved to be mutually agreeable. In Johnson's works, it is said that this meeting was at the Bishop of St Blanks, Asaphs. Boswell, by his careful inquiry, no doubt meant to show that this statement was wrong. Johnson is reported to have said, Dr Warburton at first looked surlily at me, but after we had been jostled into conversation, he took me to a window, asked me some questions, and before we parted, was so well pleased with me that he patted me. I am well informed that Warburton said of Johnson, I admire him but I cannot bear his style. And that Johnson being told of this said, that is exactly my case as to him. Footnote. Warburton's style is copious without selection, and forcible without neatness. He took the words that presented themselves. His diction is coarse and impure, and his sentences are unmeasured. End of footnote. The manner in which he expressed his admiration of the fertility of Warburton's genius, and of the variety of his materials, was, The table is always full, sir. He brings things from the north and the south and from every quarter. In his divine legation, you are always entertained. He carries you round and round without carrying you forward to the point, but then you have no wish to be carried forward. He said to the Reverend Mr. Strawn, Warburton is perhaps the last man who has written with a mind full of reading and reflection. Footnote. Churchill, in The Duelist, describes Warburton as having a heart, which virtue ne'er disgraced, a head, where learning runs to waste. It is remarkable that in the life of Broome, Johnson takes notice of Dr Warburton using a mode of expression which he himself used, and that not seldom, to the great offence of those who did not know him. Having occasion to mention a note stating the different parts which were executed by the associated translators of the Odyssey, he says, Dr Warburton told me in his warm language that he thought the relation given in the note a lie. The language is warm indeed and, I must own, cannot be justified in consistency with a decent regard to the established forms of speech. Johnson had accustomed himself to use the word lie to express a mistake or an error in relation. In short, when the thing was not so as told, though the relator did not mean to deceive, When he thought there was intentional falsehood in the relator, his expression was, He lies, and he knows he lies. Footnote. I never, writes Mrs. Piozzi, heard Johnson pronounce the words, I beg your pardon, sir, to any human creature but the apparently soft and gentle Dr. Burney. Burney had asked her whether she had subscribed a hundred pounds to building a bridge, it is very comical, is it not, sir, said I, turning to Dr. Johnson, that people should tell such unfounded stories. It is, answered he, neither comical nor serious, my dear. It is only a wandering lie. This was spoken in his natural voice, without a thought of offence, I am confident, but up bounced Burney in a towering passion, and to my much amaze, put on the hero surprising dr johnson into a sudden request for pardon and protestation of not having ever intended to accuse his friend of a falsehood speaking of popes not having been known to excel in conversation johnson observes that traditional memory retains no sallies of raillery or sentences of observation nothing either pointed or solid wise or merry and that one apotheom only is recorded in this respect pope differed widely from johnson whose conversation was perhaps more admirable than even his writings however excellent mr wilkes has however favoured me with one repartee of pope of which johnson was not informed Johnson, after justly censuring him for having nursed in his mind a foolish disesteem of kings, tells us, yet a little regard, shown him by the Prince of Wales, melted his obduracy, and he had not much to say when he was asked by His Royal Highness how he could love a prince when he disliked kings. Footnote surely the words had not much to say imply that johnson had heard the answer but thought little of its wit according to mr croker the repartee is given in roughhead's life of pope and this book johnson had seen end of footnote. the answer which pope made was the young lion is harmless and even playful but when his claws are full grown He becomes cruel, dreadful, and mischievous. Although we have no collection of Pope's sayings, it is not therefore to be concluded that he was not agreeable in social intercourse, for Johnson has been heard to say that the happiest conversation is that of which nothing is distinctly remembered, but a general effect of pleasing impression. The late Lord Somerville, who saw much both of great and brilliant life told me that he had dined in company with pope and that after dinner the little man as he called him drank his bottle of burgundy and was exceedingly gay and entertaining let me here express my grateful remembrance of lord somerville's kindness to me at a very early period he was the first person of high rank that took particular notice of me in the way most flattering to a young man fondly ambitious of being distinguished for his literary talents, and by the honour of his encouragement made me think well of myself and aspire to deserve it better. He had a happy art of communicating his varied knowledge of the world in short remarks and anecdotes, with a quiet pleasant gravity that was exceedingly engaging never shall i forget the hours which i enjoyed with him at his apartments in the royal palace of holyrood house and at his seat near edinburgh which he himself had formed with an elegant taste Boswell. End of footnote. i cannot withhold from my great friend a censure of at least culpable inattention to a nobleman who it has been shown, behaved to him with uncommon politeness. He says, Except Lord Bathurst, none of Pope's noble friends were such as that a good man would wish to have his intimacy with them known to posterity. Footnote. Boswell, I think, misunderstands Johnson. Johnson said that Pope's admiration of the great seems to have increased in the advance of life. His Iliad he had dedicated to Congreve, but to his latter works he took care to annex names dignified with titles, but was not very happy in his choice. For except Lord Bathurst, none of his noble friends were such as that a good man would wish to have his intimacy with them known to posterity. He can derive little honour from the notice of Cobham, Burlington, or Bolingbroke johnson it seems clear is speaking not of the nobleman whom pope knew in general but of those to whom he dedicated any of his works among them lord marchmont is not found so that on him no slight is cast End of footnote. this will not apply to lord mansfield who was not ennobled in pope's lifetime But Johnson should have recollected that Lord Marchmont was one of those noble friends. He includes his lordship, along with Lord Bolingbroke, in a charge of neglect of the papers which Pope left by his will, when in truth, as I myself pointed out to him before he wrote that poet's life, the papers were committed to the sole care and judgment of Lord Bolingbroke, unless he, Lord Bolingbroke, shall not survive me. So that Lord Marchmont had no concern whatever with them. Footnote. Neither does Johnson actually say that Lord Marchmont had any concern, though perhaps he implies it. He writes, Pope left the care of his papers to his executors, first to Lord Bolingbroke, and, if he should not be living, to the Earl of Marchmont undoubtedly expecting them to be proud of the trust, and eager to extend his fame. But let no man dream of influence beyond his life. After a decent time, Doddsley the bookseller went to solicit preference as the publisher, and was told that the parcel had not been yet inspected. And whatever was the reason, the world has been disappointed of what was reserved for the next age. As Bolingbroke outlived Pope by more than seven years, it is clear from what Johnson states that he alone had the care of the papers, and that he gave the answer to Doddsley. Marchmont, however, knew the contents of the papers. End of footnote. After the first edition of the Lives, Mr Malone, whose love of justice is equal to his accuracy, made, in my hearing, the same remark to Johnson, yet he omitted to correct the erroneous statement. Footnote. This neglect did not arise from any ill-will towards Lord Marchmont, but from inattention, just as he neglected to correct his statement concerning the family of Thomson, the poet, after it had been shown to be erroneous. Malone End of footnote. These particulars I mention in the belief that there was only forgetfulness in my friend, but I owe this much to the Earl of Marchmont's reputation, who were there no other memorials, will be immortalized by that line of Pope in the verses on his grotto, and the bright flame was shot through Marchmont's soul. Various readings in the life of Pope. Reader's note, the original version follows the published version. Sufficiently bold in his criticism. Somewhat free in his criticism. All the gay varieties of diction. All the niceties of diction, strikes the imagination with far greater force, strikes the imagination with far more force. It is certainly the noblest version of poetry which the world has ever seen. It is probably the noblest version of poetry which the world has ever seen. Every sheet enabled him to write the next with more facility. Every sheet enabled him to write the next with less trouble. No man sympathises with the sorrows of vanity. No man sympathises with vanity depressed. It had been less easily excused. It had been criminal. When he talked of laying down his pen, when he threatened to lay down his pen, society, politically regulated, is a state contra-distinguished from a state of nature, society is so named emphatically in opposition to a state of nature a fictitious life of an infatuated scholar a fictitious life of an absurd scholar a foolish disesteem of kings a foolish contempt disregard of kings his hopes and fears his joys and sorrows acted strongly upon his mind. His hopes and fears, his joys and sorrows, were like those of other mortals. Eager to pursue knowledge and attentive to retain it. Eager to pursue knowledge and attentive to accumulate it. A mind active, ambitious and adventurous. A mind excursive, ambitious and adventurous. In its widest researches, still longing to go forward in its noblest researches, still longing to go forward. He wrote in such a manner as might expose him to few hazards. He wrote in such a manner as might expose him to few neglects. The justice of my determination. The reasonableness of my determination. A delicious employment of the poets. A favourite employment of the poets. More terrific and more powerful phantoms perform on the stormy ocean. More terrific and more powerful beings perform on the stormy ocean. The inventor of this petty nation, the inventor of those petty beings, the heart naturally loves truth. The mind naturally loves truth. In the life of Addison, we find an unpleasing account of his having lent Steele a hundred pounds and reclaimed his loan by an execution. In the new edition of the Biographia Britannica the authenticity of this anecdote is denied, but Mr. Malone has obliged me with the following note concerning it. Many persons having doubts concerning this fact, I applied to Dr. Johnson to learn on what authority he asserted it. He told me he had it from Savage, who lived in intimacy with Steele, and who mentioned that Steele told him the story with tears in his eyes. Ben Victor, Dr. Johnson said, likewise informed him of this remarkable transaction from the relation of Mr. Wilkes, the comedian, who was also an intimate of Steele's. Some in defence of Addison have said that the act was done with the good-natured view of rousing Steele and correcting that profusion which always made him necessitous. If that were the case, said Johnson, and that he only wanted to alarm Steele, he would afterwards have returned the money to his friend, which it is not pretended he did. This too, he added, might be retorted by an advocate for Steele, who might allege that he did not repay the loan intentionally merely to see whether addison would be mean and ungenerous enough to make use of legal process to recover it but of such speculations there is no end we cannot dive into the hearts of men but their actions are open to observation I then mentioned to him that some people thought that Mr. Addison's character was so pure that the fact, though true, ought to have been suppressed. Footnote. A better and more Christian man scarcely ever breathed than Joseph Addison. If he had not that little weakness for wine, why, we could scarcely have found a fault with him, and could not have liked him as we do. End of footnote. He saw no reason for this. If nothing but the bright side of character should be shown, we should sit down in despondency and think it utterly impossible to imitate them in anything. The sacred writers, he observed, related the vicious as well as the virtuous actions of men, which had this moral effect, that it kept mankind from despair into which otherwise they would naturally fall, were they not supported by the recollection that others had offended like themselves, and by penitence and amendment of life had been restored to the favour of heaven. E.M. March the fifteenth, 1782 The last paragraph of this note is of great importance, and I request that my readers may consider it with particular attention. It will be afterwards referred to in this work. Various readings in the life of Addison. He was, however, one of our earliest examples of correctness. But he was our first great example of correctness. And despised their masters. And overlooked their masters. His instructions were such as the character of his readers made proper. His instructions were such as the state of his own time made necessary. His purpose was to infuse literary curiosity by gentle and unsuspected conveyance into the gay, the idle and the wealthy. His purpose was to diffuse literary curiosity by gentle and unsuspected conveyance among the gay, the idle and the wealthy. Framed rather for those that are learning to write. Framed rather for those that wish to write. Domestic scenes. Domestic manners. In his Life of Parnell, I wonder that Johnson omitted to insert an epitaph which he had long before composed for that amiable man, without ever writing it down, but which he was so good as, at my request, to dictate to me, by which means it has been preserved. Hic requiescit Thomas Parnell, Sacre Theologiae Professor. Qui sacerdos parita et poeta, Utrasque partes ita implavit, ut neque sacerdotis suavitas poete, neo poetae sacerdoti sanctitas de Various readings in the life of Parnell. About three years afterwards, about three years after, was in no great need of improvement, did not much want improvement. But his prosperity did not last long. His end, whatever was the cause, was now approaching. But his prosperity was clouded, by that which took away all his powers of enjoying either profit or pleasure the death of his wife whom he is said to have lamented with such sorrow as hastened his end footnote. i should have thought that johnson who had felt the severe affliction from which parnell never recovered would have preserved this passage boswell end of footnote. In The Hermit, the narrative, as it is less airy, is less pleasing. In The Hermit, the composition, as it is less airy, is less pleasing. In The Life of Blackmore, we find that writer's reputation generously cleared by Johnson from the cloud of prejudice which the malignity of contemporary wits had raised around it. Mrs. Thrale, Wrote to Johnson in May 1780, Blackmore will be rescued from the old wits who worried him, much to your disliking. So, f- a little for love of his Christianity, a little for love of his physic, a little for love of his courage, and a little for love of contradiction, you will save him from his malevolent critics, and perhaps do him the honour to devour him yourself. in In this spirited exertion of justice he has been imitated by sir joshua reynolds in his praise of the architecture of vanbrugh this is a tribute which a painter owes to an architect who composed like a painter and was defrauded of the due reward of his merit by the wits of his time who did not understand the principles of composition in poetry better than he did, and who knew little or nothing of what he understood perfectly, the general ruling principles of architecture and painting. End of footnote. End of section 6.